Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you all as we continue our worship and take some time to dig into the Word. Can we take a few moments to bow our heads in prayer? Father in heaven, oh, we do thank you. We praise you, Lord, that we can gather together in your name. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. We thank you for the songs of praise that we can lift up freely to your name. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to worship you and your word. So, Father, prepare our hearts and minds for the truth therein. We pray, Lord, that you get us out of the way and instruct us in the truth of your word. So, Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, we ask that you'd make us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, I'd like to ask you a question. How important is prayer to you? Uh, prayer was so important to a man by the name of Joe Kennedy that in 2015, it cost him his job. You see, Joe Kennedy uh, was a high school football coach, maybe four and a half hours from here in Bremerton, Washington. And uh, as he was a coach, he made a covenant with God. He made a promise with the Lord that after every game on the 50-yard line, he would give the Lord a quick prayer of thanksgiving. So he'd, give, he'd kneel, and for seven years, that's what he did. Uh, up until 2015, because uh, over those seven years, folks started to take notice. Some of the students, some of the players took notice, and they asked him, they said, hey, coach, do you mind if we come with you and pray with you on the 50-yard line? And he said, come, go ahead. Uh, some of the folks, they came and prayed with him. Other students, they chose not to. But not only did he draw the attention of students, he also started to draw the attention of parents and started to draw the attention of the school district, and they started to raise concerns. They looked at this coach and they said, you know what you're doing? You're endorsing a particular religion and, and that's not going to fly around here. And so they challenged him and they said, we would ask that you not do that. And he complied for a time. But after he complied for a time, he really believed that he could not just obey man. He needed to obey God. And he continued to do what he had done before. And he ended up getting terminated from his position in 2015. He argued that what they were doing was violating his First Amendment rights. They said, no, what he's doing is he's pushing a certain religion and he's adding pressure to the students to pray. And so all of this disagreement ended up getting resolved in the courts. And this past year, it went up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled actually in favor of Coach Joe Kennedy. But the... You break <laughs> But the interesting thing is this, you know, Joe Kennedy, the reason prayer was such a priority to him uh, was not, uh, it really didn't depend for him what the, the, the lower courts had to say. It didn't really matter what the school district had to say. It really didn't even matter to him what the Supreme Court had to say because in the end, what mattered to him most was what God had to say. And in, in light of all that, I want to ask you, how important is prayer to you? Now, it doesn't matter if you would do what Joe Kennedy did or not, but is prayer such a priority that if a relationship or, or an activity or something, even your job, gotten in the way of prayer, would you prioritize prayer above those things? This morning, I want to take some time to remind us of the importance of prayer. By reminding us of the kind of difference prayer can and continues to make in your life and mine as we continue through our study of the book of Habakkuk. We're going to be in chapter 1, verse 12. We're going to be walking through the end of chapter 2, verse 20. But in the book of Habakkuk, we read about a conversation between a prophet and the Lord. 
And what we're going to see and continue to see in our study is how this conversation is the means by which this prophet's outlook is transformed from worry into worship. How this conversation with God through his conversation in chapter 1 into chapter 2 transforms his frustrations because of the troubled times he lives in is transformed into faith. And how his complaint that is laid out before the Lord in chapter 1 is transformed into a declaration of confidence in chapter 3. And we're going to continue to see how prayer continues to make an impact as we hear about this conversation. Now, last time we were together, we talked about why we should trust God in troubled times. This week, in chapter 1, verse 12, to the end of chapter 2, I want to talk about how to trust God in troubled times. Last time we were together, we said we should trust God in troubled times because he answers or he hears the honest prayers of his people. We said we should trust God. The reason is because he answers according to his will, sometimes in unexpected and astonishing ways. Today, I want to take some time to talk about how to place our trust in God so that, as it did for Habakkuk, our worry in troubled times would be transformed into worship. So that our complaints or our stress would be transformed into a song and that what looked like frustration would be transformed in our faith as we declare we know who our God is in response to him. And so how do you trust God when you don't even understand what he's doing? Would you stand in honor of the reading of the word Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12 and then we'll be reading to the end of chapter 2 verse 20. The text reads this way, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet. Because of them, their share is sumptuous. and Their food is plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man. And he does not stay at home because he enlarges his desire as hell. And he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his, how long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges, will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you and you will become their booty? Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Because of the men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it, woe to him who covets evil gain in his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. 
You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, it is not the Lord of, is, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire and the nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and the waters cover the, as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it. To make mute idols, woe to him who says to wood, awake, to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The word of the Lord, you all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. As we continue through our study of the book of Habakkuk, I want to answer this question. How do we trust God in troubled times? How do you trust him when you, you don't really understand him? If I could give you an outline of the book, chapter one is about Habakkuk's worry. Chapter two is about him watching and waiting, watching to see what God is going to answer and re the revelation he's going to give. And then the final chapter is all about worship as Habakkuk declares his praise to the Lord in his song of worship to the Lord. But it begins with worry. It begins with stress. It begins with frustration. Habakkuk takes a look at the, 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 the way the world is and the way the nation has fallen away from God. Judah, God's chosen people, and they have turned their backs on God. Habakkuk called out to the Lord in the first four verses. Last time we were together, we looked at it in chapter one. And Habakkuk just asked this basic question. God, why won't you intervene or when are you going to intervene? When you look at the nation, Habakkuk says there is violence, there is injustice, there is iniquity. Habakkuk declared, God, how long will I cry out violence and you not save? And so Habakkuk's first question in Habakkuk was, God, when are you going to intervene? When are you going to do something about this nation who is wicked? And then the Lord responds and he says, I am doing something. Look, watch and see, be astonished. Because what I'm about to do, you won't even believe it. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. I'm raising up the Babylonians. And Habakkuk is going to say, this is a nation that is less righteous than Judah, God. And Habakkuk, he asks the Lord to do something. And then when the Lord does something, Habakkuk is going to ask, as we see in our text today, God, why do you have to do it that way? God, why did you have to use them? And this is a helpful reminder for us to, as we learn to trust God in, in troubled times. As we consider Habakkuk, how many times have we prayed for the Lord to do something? How many times have we prayed for God to answer a prayer and then asked as Habakkuk asked, Lord, why did you have to do it that way? Some people pray for a spouse. They say, Lord, I pray I'm, I'm lonely. I want a, a, someone to do life with. The Lord gives you a spouse and then two or three years down the line... Five years, 20 years down the line, you say, Lord, why'd you have to give me this one? 
You think about a job, somebody prays for a job and they say, Lord, I need to provide for myself and I need to provide for my family and the Lord answers your prayer and then you say, Lord, why do you have to give me this job? Habakkuk takes a look at the nation and he says, Lord, do something about it. You are a just holy God. You cannot look upon wickedness and, and not do something about it. Do something. And God says, I am doing something. And Habakkuk says, why do you have to do it that way? So how do we trust God in troubled times? How do you trust God when you don't even understand him? The first thing as we follow Habakkuk's example is have a conversation with God. In troubled times, as, as you're navigating life and the world and the things going on in the international developments of the world, take time to have honest conversations with God. Now, Habakkuk has some questions, but it's interesting to note that before he lists his complaints, before he describes his confusion, in verse 12, he begins by declaring his confidence. His confidence in the Lord. Now, this is helpful for you and I. If you are going through a troubled time or you have some questions as you take a look at your life and the world around you and you say, God, I have some complaints. I have some struggles I want to I talk to you about. I have some questions that I'd like you to answer. Now, if you still struggle with being honest with the Lord, I want to take some time to remind you that if you're thinking about it in your heart, God already knows what you're thinking. And so you might as well be honest with God. But Habakkuk, before he describes his straightforward questions to hear God's straightforward answers, he first declares his confidence in the Lord. Read with me, verse 12 again. It says, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. Habakkuk first declares his confidence in an everlasting God. Our God is an everlasting God. That God is everlasting means that he is eternal. That God is everlasting reminds us that he's the same God yesterday, today, and forevermore. When we consider that God is the everlasting God and Habakkuk declares his confidence in the Lord, it's a reminder that before the nations were formed, God was the everlasting God and he continues to be the everlasting God. When the nations are no more and dissolved, when the rulers of the world are taken out of power, God will continue to be the everlasting God. This is a reminder to all of us that your hope and my hope is not in elections or the outcomes of elections. Your hope and my hope is not in nations or rulers of nations, nations that form and nations that are dissolved, but our hope is in the everlasting God who was, who is, and who is to come. God is the everlasting God, and we are to declare our confidence in him as Habakkuk declares his confidence in him. He is the everlasting God. Secondly, he is the covenant-keeping God. He said, are you not from everlasting? Oh, Lord. The word Lord there is Yahweh. It's the covenant-keeping name of God. It reminds us that our God, who we worship and serve, makes promises and he keeps his promises. He's the God who made his promises to Abraham and his seed, Isaac and Jacob. He's the God who keeps his promises as he's made his promises. And this is helpful for Habakkuk in light of the coming Babylonian exile to know that God will discipline the nation, but he will not completely destroy the nation. God will always preserve 
a remnant and will one day fulfill his promise as we read about it in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that Israel will receive land, seed, and blessing. God is a covenant-keeping God. And when you take a look at the international developments of things and it may feel or seem as if God isn't working or God is silent in some capacity, we can know and look back to the promises of God and know that God will fulfill the promises that he has given. So Habakkuk declares his confidence, God, you are the everlasting God. God, you are a covenant-keeping God. You make promises and you keep your promises. And then thirdly, he's an intensely personal God. Habakkuk declares, you are my God, my Holy One. Do you know God that personally? That you can have some questions and you may have some complaints. You, you may, Lord, I don't understand how everything is working out, but I can declare this, you're my God and you are my Holy One. I want you to know God is intensely personal especially for those who are his children, adopted as children of God. God loves you. God knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you in details. He knows the number of hairs on your head. That's who God is, and he is intensely personal. Habakkuk, he knows about your troubles. He knows about your frustrations. He knows the stress that you feel as you know God is holy and righteous and doesn't seem to be intervening and in bringing about divine discipline on the nation. God knows it. And God knows when he announces the Chaldeans are coming, the Babylonians are going to come and conquer. And you say, God, how could you send them to bring discipline to your people? God knows the frustrations. He knows the troubles. He knows the struggles. Habakkuk declares, you are an intensely personal God. And then fourthly, he declares that his confidence in the Lord, who is a holy God, my holy one. When you read the minor prophets, the major prophets, when you read scripture, you're reminded that our God is holy. To be holy means that God is set apart. We describe the holiness of God as holy, holy, holy. He's so holy, we can't use a word to describe it, so we mention it three times. Holy, holy, holy. God is holy in that he is set apart. He is set apart from creation because he is the creator. He is set apart from sin and unrighteousness as the righteous one. There is no one like our God. No one like him in heaven and earth or anything in it. God alone is holy. He is set apart. There is no one like our God. What a wonderful thing for us to set the atmosphere of our prayers, even in struggling times, even when we have questions to say, God, you are the everlasting God. God, you are the covenant-keeping God. God, you are a personal God. I know you personally, and God, you are incredibly holy. And then fifthly, lastly, he declares his confidence in the Lord as his rock. As his rock, God is the one who protects and preserves. As his rock, God is the one who disciplines and punishes. First, as his rock, God is the one who protects and preserves. In Psalm 18.2, it says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. God is our rock who preserves us. Uh, Habakkuk makes this declaration in verse 13. 
he says, or verse 12, excuse me, it says, O Lord, uh, o Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. This is a reminder that although God was going to discipline the nation, he was going to restore her as well. That the nation of Judah was going to be preserved through the judgment. The judgment, the purpose of the judgment was in order to correct. The purpose of the judgment was in order to turn the hearts of God's people back to himself. And so Habakkuk makes this declaration, we will not die. He continues to say, we will not die, O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. Habakkuk says, listen, God, I understand they are in need, we are in need of divine discipline. We are in need of our hearts being turned back to you. We need correction. And, O oh, rock, you are not one who preserves us, but also one who disciplines and corrects us. And so Habakkuk begins in verse 12 and says his declaration of confidence, Lord, I know who you are. You are everlasting. You are holy. You are my rock who preserves and protects, who disciplines and who punishes. And then having made this declaration of confidence, then he moves on to make a declaration of confusion. God, in light of who you are, I've got to admit I'm a bit confused that you would choose to use the wicked Babylonians to come in and to bring justice to your people. And the first reason he gives in verse 13 is because they are less righteous than Judah. He says, you are, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. In other words, Lord, you are a God who is holy. You are a God who is pure. And so when you look upon wickedness, you must do something about it. You can't stand back and do nothing. And so he says, why do you look on those who deal treacherously, speaking of the Babylonians, and hold your tongue when wicked devours a person more righteous than he? What Habakkuk can't wrap his mind around is how the Babylonians could be God's instrument to bring justice to Judah and judgment to Judah. After all, it doesn't really make sense. Just follow Habakkuk's logic, right? I mean, if God can't look upon evil and he's going to judge it in Judah, and you have a greater nation called Babylon who is going to conquer more nations than Judah, isn't in allowing Babylon to conquer Judah, not doing away with evil, but just causing it to multiply. The Babylonians, they conquer Judah, they conquer the rest, and iniquity, violence, and injustice continue to be pervasive. And Habakkuk says, I just don't understand it, Lord. I can't understand why you would use the wicked Babylonians. They're less righteous than me. Secondly, they have no regard for life. They treat life as, that, as, which is, as low as it's cheap. They don't treat man as if he's created in the image of God. It says here, he treats them like fish or creeping things. Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? I'm not much of a fisherman, but I'm sure there's plenty of folks who fish here. And when you think of fish, uh, you don't really consider that uh, they have much rights. You do with them as you wish. You throw, well, you catch them, you put a, a hook in them, and sometimes you take them home and eat them. Other times you throw them back, and they've got a big old hole in their mouth. 
And Habakkuk is saying, Lord, take a look at these Babylonians. They treat life as if it's cheap. And they go around like taking their nets, speaking of their military power, and catching these fish and mistreating them accordingly as defenseless and without any rights. Habakkuk says, look at the Babylonians. They treat men like creeping things that have no ruler over them to protect them. You think of the worm. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, you see ants on the floor. You stomp as many as you can. It's a good picture of the Babylonians. They look at life and they treat it as nothing. And then verse 15, Habakkuk also says, the reason I'm confused why you would use the Babylonians is because they attribute their success to their military strength and to their military power instead of the sovereign hand of God who allows nations to uh, be successful. It says they take up all of them with a hook. They then catch them with their net and gather them in their, in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. When it says hook, net, or dragnet, it's speaking of their military power. Speaking of their military strength, it's speaking of their weapons, and they rejoice over that. It says they attribute in verse 16 their success to, these, to their military strength. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet. Because of them, their share is sumptuous, and their food is plentiful. In other words, Habakkuk says, Lord, I don't understand how you could use these wicked Babylonians who are so puffed up with pride that they believe the reason they are experiencing success is because of their military strength and their power. They are so full of themselves, they can't see that you are God. And then in verse 17, he says, God, I just don't understand how you could allow them to come into Judah to bring judgment to them and then continue on and do what they do. He says this in verse 17, Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay the nations with pity? In other words, God, these Babylonians are so wicked, they come in, they exile the nation of Judah, and then after that, they go out and they kill some more. Violence, iniquity, and injustice continue to be pervasive. And Habakkuk says, I don't understand it. Habakkuk begins this conversation with the Lord and he says, God, I want to declare my confidence in you. You are the everlasting God. You are holy. You are my rock. We will not die. But Lord, I want to declare my confusion. I'm confused why you would use these people to accomplish your divine purposes. And then thirdly, in chapter 2, verse 1, he declares his commitment. He says, but my commitment to you, Lord, is I will watch and I will wait. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Habakkuk says, my commitment is I'm going to watch and I'm going to wait. How do you watch and wait in times of waiting for the Lord? By means of first waiting with expectation. Habakkuk is waiting with expectation for God to answer. Habakkuk presented his honest questions to the Lord in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, and we read about those, and the Lord gave him an answer. Now, once again, Habakkuk responds and says, I've got more questions for you, Lord, and the Lord gives, gives him, is going to give him another answer, and so he's waiting patiently on the Lord, and so he watches with expectation. As you watch and you wait on the Lord, take time to watch God's word with expectation. Dig into it. Study it. 
in times when you're struggling, in times when they are good, in all times in your life, keep your eyes fixed on God's word, knowing that it will not return void and invest your time with God in his word and hear what he has to say. Now, some people, so many people sometimes in different circles of churches will say, I need a word from the Lord today. I'm going through a particular season of life or I'm entering into a new year and, and, I, and I, I'm struggling if I should continue in this job or go another and just open his word and you can hear a word from the Lord. God speaks through his in, in authoritative, inerrant word and so if you want a word, open up the Bible and you'll hear it. So Habakkuk waits and watches with expectation. Secondly, he waits and watches with great vigilance. It says, I will set myself on the rampart. Habakkuk views himself as a watchman on a, on, a, on a roof as he's watching out to see if anyone's going to come and attack the city. And so when you're watching like that, you've got to watch with great vigilance. And so he is hyper-focused on what God is about to say. But not only does he watch with expectation and vigilance, but he also watches with a heart that is teachable. It's one thing to declare your confidence in the Lord and then to declare your confusion. But the next step is to say, God, if you need to correct me, correct me. God, I'm struggling in this way, but Lord, allow me to see things through the lens of your word and see things through the lens of your will. And Habakkuk waits with a teachable heart. He says, I'm waiting for God to answer me and I'm waiting for him to correct me. Habakkuk knows the Lord. He understands who he is, but he's confused about how God's working. And so he says, Lord, do something. The Lord does something. He says, why do you have to work through them? And so Habakkuk is still in a state of worry. But the revelation of God is the means by which his worry is going to be turned into worship. Habakkuk is in a state of frustration. He's stressed out. But the revelation of God is the means by which his frustration is going to turn into faith is the means by which his stress and his sobs that we read about in chapter 1 is going to be transformed into faith and is going to be transformed into a song of praise. And so, how do you trust God in troubled times? How do you trust him when you don't even understand him? By simply having an ongoing conversation with him. And so if I could go through those three things once again and give a specific application, the first one is this, declare your confidence in the Lord. For every single one of us who are believers, who have trusted in Christ as our Savior and Lord, we have the ability to confidently declare that we will not die in our sin. If you have trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord, you have confidence today to say that you have, your sins have been forgiven and you will spend eternity with God and his people forever and ever. May that be the testimony that you declare, we will not die in our sins. But let this be an invitation for anyone who finds themselves having not trusted in Christ as their Savior and Lord. We're reminded in Scripture that you are spiritually dead that means that if you continue on the path that you're on, if you don't trust in Christ and him crucified, you will not just die a physical death, you will die a spiritual death, and you will experience an eternal separation from God and his people forever and ever. 
The invitation today is for you to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ and him crucified and receive salvation in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. When you read a text like Habakkuk, we're reminded that judgment is certain for all. Not just nations and rulers of nations, but every individual. We will give an account for our lives, for what we thought, for what we've done. And we are in need of forgiveness. We are in need of salvation in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And so first and foremost, I pray that this would be your declaration of your confidence in the Lord. We will not die in our sins. Uh, Secondly, I want to encourage us to... Have honest prayers and conversations with the Lord. If you're not convinced yet that you can have these honest conversations, I want to let you know it turned out okay with for Habakkuk. We've read about some of the psalmists last week. And Psalm 13 is, as you pray to the Lord and you express your honest prayers, begin by declaring who God is and then be honest with the Lord. God, I'm struggling with this. I'm confused about that. God, help me understand this. And then lastly, take time to declare your commitment to watch and to wait. As you watch and wait, in Isaiah, it reminds us that we don't watch and wait just just doing nothing, just putting our thumbs together and just relaxing. Well, I'm just waiting on God to do something. No, God strengthens those who are watching and waiting. The reason is because he's the everlasting God. Let me take you to Isaiah Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 begins this way. It says, have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God? That's the one who's referred to here. The Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be strengthened in the Lord as you watch and you wait. As you watch and wait with expectation, as you watch and wait with vigilance, as you watch and wait to see if God is going to correct you if you need correction, be strengthened as you do just that. He is the everlasting God. Let me remind you before we move to the revelation of God that changes Habakkuk's worry into worship that I want you to know this, Habakkuk's circumstances don't change. The nation's circumstances don't change. The Babylonians are going to come in between 609 and 586 B.C. Three exiles are going to take place and in 586 B.C. they're going to be completely destroyed. The the, the city of Jerusalem, the walls and the temple. But while the circumstances don't change, your outlook can as you keep your focus on who God is and what he continues to do. And so first, how do you trust God in troubled times? By continuing to have an honest conversation with him. And then secondly, by continuing to have a conversation with him through his word and to hear his word declared. As we pick up in the uh, next section, as we hear God's answer, verse 2, it begins and it says, Then the Lord answered me and said. I I want you to uh, be reminded of Habakkuk's hypervigilance, waiting for the Lord to answer. Habakkuk has given some... Some uh, serious 
Serious words here. He says, shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay the nations without pity? I mean, Habakkuk has, has, has spoken to the Lord this way. And you wonder, Habakkuk, I'm surprised that the Lord doesn't strike you dead with some lightning bolts right there. You know, are you even allowed to ask questions like that? And the answer is given. And it says the Lord answered Habakkuk. Isn't it wonderful to know that we serve a God who is personal? A God who is holy? A God who is set apart from creation but still answers the prayers of his people. What a wonderful thing to know that God is sovereign, that, that, that he is not like us. He is holy and righteous, and yet he has a relationship with us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He answers the prayers of his people. That's significant. And just to unpack the, the verses 2 to 20 and just give you a working outline. First, he's, he's going to give us introductory instructions in verses 2 to 3. And then in verses 4 to 5, he's going to give us a description of the Babylonians. And then in verses 6 to 20, he's going to talk about impending judgment through five woes that are going to come. But let me begin by considering God's initial instructions to Habakkuk. He, he says in verse 2, write this down. And then in verse 3, verse three wait for it to come to pass. First, he says, write this down. He says, um, uh, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. Habakkuk says, I want you to record this on tablets. And he gives us three reasons why. The first reason, I want you to write this on, on tablets because the, the vision he's going to reveal and the message he's going to declare, the prophecy that's going to be given to Habakkuk is a permanent one. Aren't you thankful that Habakkuk listened to the Lord and recorded the message? And we have these three amazing chapters of this Old Testament prophecy. And he writes it down, he records it because it's, permanent. It's a message that was relevant to Habakkuk. It was a message relevant to the people of God during the exile. It was a message to the people of God even when they were restored back into the land 70 years later and they started to rebuild the temple. In Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuild the walls. And so you take a look at the history of it all and you get to see that God is working. It's a permanent message. Secondly, it's a, a plain message. He, he says, write it plainly. Uh, large enough, legible enough for other people to take a look at the tablets and see what the word of the Lord declares. This was a welcome message. The reason is because the folks who conquered Judah and exiled them would be conquered as well. And God would execute judgment upon Babylon as well. Because Habakkuk's question was, God, God are you just going to allow them to continue to continue to wreak havoc and continue to spread injustice and violence throughout the earth. And the Lord says, no, I'm going to do something about it. Their time of judgment is coming. And so he says, write the vision. It's a, a plain one. And then lastly, I would say it's a public one that he may run who reads it. I want to take a moment to remind you that it's good news. It, it's good news to declare to these Exiles, it's good news to declare to the children of Israel that God will execute judgment on those who have conquered and exiled the nation. And this is good news. You know, good news should be treated as good news. It's something you run with and you tell one person, then you run and tell the next. You know, if it's really good news, you know, I want to share it with my whole family. If I got a new job, if, 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 if some new update has come, if you have a child, you know, you don't just keep that to yourself. You let your family know. You know, what a surprise it would be that I called up my mother and said, hey, last week we had a child. And she'd be like, what? You didn't tell me. That's good news. 
And yet, do we treat good news as publicly as we should? I mean, is, is the gospel, which is the best news that we could hear, something we run and share with one neighbor and run to share with the next? Is the gospel such good news that in the workplace we run to one coworker and then run to the next and let the message be known? Is the gospel such good news that we stand on our rooftops and declare to a lost world around us that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again according to the scriptures, and he offers salvation as a free gift to anyone who would receive him as Savior and as Lord? The gospel is good news. I can share this. Uh, one of our newer members, Harold, he teaches a Bible study at one of the businesses and it's, a, it's a, a Bible study in Spanish, and so he has a translator there, and during the Bible study, he was sharing about the bad news, uh, our need for Christ. He took some time to share about, apart from Christ, in a, in a way that they could understand, we're all deserving of wrath and judgment. We need forgiveness. We need to trust in Jesus as our Savior and our, and, our, and our Lord. And by the time he got to the end of the study, he said, that's the bad news. You guys have to come back next week to hear the good news. And there was one in the study who said, excuse me, I'm not waiting till next week to hear the good news. You're gonna have to tell me right now. And she ended up hearing the gospel. He ended up coming over with the translator and another and they shared the good news of Jesus Christ with her. And we, she received salvation in Jesus as her Savior and as her Lord. That's good news. That's good news that's worth sharing. That's, worth news, that's good news that's worth sharing with one person and running to the next because of what Christ has done and what Christ can continue to do in our lives. And so he says, write it down. It's a public message. It's a plain message. It's a permanent message. Secondly, don't just write it down. Wait for it to come to pass. In verse 3, it says, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. This is a bit unfortunate. When you want to see judgment come down upon injustice and wickedness and evil, Want it to happen right now, you know? You take a look at the evil pervasive in the world today. You consider some wicked leaders of nations. I mean, Lord, send down lightning bolts and destroy them now. But what we get to see in our text is there is an appointed time for that. What we're reminded here is that God is sovereign over time. God has a time for everything. We see that in Ecclesiastes. God is not just sovereign over time. He's sovereign over history. God is not just sovereign over history. He's sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over rulers of nations. He's sovereign over nations that are formed and nations that are dissolved because in the end, the only kingdom that stands is his. And this morning, we can take great comfort in knowing that God is sovereign and he will execute judgment in the right time. I'd like to share this with you. You know, most people, whether they believe in God or not, take a look at evil in the world and they say, if God does exist, bring it on. Bring judgment upon these wicked nations. Bring judgment upon these wicked rulers. But the problem is this. People don't recognize that the evil is not necessarily out there. The evil is present right in here. And the resolution to the problems in the world and the problems in our life is ultimately a, a heart that is sinful. 
a heart that needs transformation, a, a heart that needs to trust in Jesus as one's Savior and as one's Lord. And he says, wait for the appointed time. God is sovereign over time and history, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. It's a reliable word. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. How long will the Babylonians reign for the next 70 years? That's a long time. Now God is going to bring in judgment. The Medes and the Persians will come in and destroy the Babylonians. But we are told here that at God's appointed time, judgment will come. Wait on the Lord. It says at the it says. At the end, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. You know, this text is actually quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37. And where it says it will not tarry, in Hebrews, whoever the author of Hebrews is, he, he changes the word it and changes it to he. It says in Hebrews 10, 37, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Do you know who's the fulfillment of Habakkuk? It's the Lord Jesus Christ who has come the first time and promises to come back again. And we watch and we wait. And Lord willing, we're prepared. And we take a look at the world around us and we see the chaos going on. We see that the righteous seem to suffer and the wicked seem to continue to do what they do. But we wait on the Lord and we say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But while we wait, let us be faithful to go about your call to go and make disciples of all nations to the ends of the earth. Christ is the fulfillment of our text. And so it says, because it will surely, it will not tarry. tarry. And so first we see the introductory instructions. Secondly, we see the Lord's description of the Babylonians. He first describes them as proud in verse 4. Behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. First, he says the, uh, the Babylonians are prideful. They're puffed up. Habakkuk says, Lord, don't you see the injustice going on, the evil, the wickedness going on? And the Lord says, yeah, I do. I see that they are prideful. Pride looks at self. And it says, ultimately, in verses 6 to 20, we're going to see those who are proud, those who are among the Babylonians, they will be swept away in judgment. Even in Judah, we heard that what's going to happen to Judah, they will be swept away in judgment, exiled under the Babylonians. And God does not turn a blind eye to wickedness, iniquity, and injustice. He executes judgment accordingly. And so it says, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. And then the Lord gives us a quick encouragement in verse 4, and it says, But the just shall live by faith. Did you know three times in the New Testament that's quoted? And one of the times that's quoted is in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Verses 1, chapter 1, verses 16 to 17 in Romans is what the whole book of Romans is all about with an explanation of the gospel. And we get to see who Paul was thinking about as he quotes Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Now, Paul's emphasis was on the faith side. The just, those who are declared righteous, those who are placed in a right standing with God, the just shall live by faith. Not faith in your good deeds or your good works. Not faith in your false religion, but faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. Habakkuk declares it here. He says, the just shall live by faith. This is an encouragement and a reminder to Habakkuk who said, we will not die. And the Lord says, no, you will not. I will protect you and I will preserve you in the face of judgment. 
But you better believe judgment is coming. Exile is going to happen. And so we get to see that unfold. So first, they're proud. Secondly, they're described as drunks. They're addicted to wine. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man and he does not stay at home because he enlarges his desire for hell. And so he is a proud man. He is a uh, wicked man. Indeed, he, he, he transgresses by wine. And then next, he has a thirst um, for more power and a thirst for more conquest. That we, that's what we read about here. It says, because he enlarges his desire as hell. The word hell there in the Hebrew is Sheol. Sheol is actually the place of the dead. So wherever you go to die, that is the place of the dead. So that's what it means there, Sheol. And so what it's saying here is just like Sheol is never satisfied with taking on some dead and is always welcoming more who will die, these are folks who are never satisfied. They conquer and they need to conquer some more. It tells us because he enlarges his desire, it is hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. In other words, they conquer one nation. They're not satisfied. They've got to conquer some more. Violence, iniquity, and injustice continue to be pervasive. And God says, I see the proud man. I see the drunk. I see the one who is addicted to alcohol. And I see the one who is not satisfied with conquering just one nation. He's got to conquer it all. And he will never fully be satisfied. And God says, I will hold them accountable. In verses 6 to 20, he declares the impending judgment that will come upon them. And so the Lord says, be comforted, Habakkuk. This is what transforms his worry into worship. He says, I, I, I'm doing something. I'm going to bring judgment at the appointed time. Write this down. Wait for it to happen. Trust my word. You better believe I'm working and I will bring about judgment in its timing. And then he brings about five woes that we read about in verses 6 to 20. First, he judges them for their selfish ambition. He says in verse 6, Will not these, speaking of the peoples that Babylon has conquered, will not these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him? In other words, the nations who have been conquered and the nations that have been plundered, they are going to sing and declare a taunting song, a taunting song towards the Babylonians. And here in these taunts are these five woes. The first woe, as is, is, is I've summed it up in selfish ambition, is woe to him who increases what is not his, how long, and to him who loads himself with many pledges. In other words, these are folks who take property and take pledges. As they take property and they take pledges and they plunder, ultimately what will happen to them is they will be plundered. In, other, in, in verse 7 it says, Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you? In other words, the Babylonians, in doing what they have done in conquering and plundering, they are now indebted to the nations, the Lord says. And the creditors will rise up, and having been plundered, they are going to plunder back. Verse 8, Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Because of your selfish ambition, judgment is coming. God holds the nations accountable. God holds rulers of nations accountable. As you continue to look at the international development of things around the world, and sometimes you wonder, God, why aren't you doing something? He is. And he will bring about judgment to all. Verses 9 to 11, he, covetousness and self-exaltation. Verse 9, woe to him who covets evil gain for his house. 
So the Babylonians, the way that they gained so much and plundered so much was by robbing the nations. That he may set a nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. The Babylonians are pictured here like an eagle who makes a nest in a very high place that is inaccessible from anyone who's going to come and destroy it. And the Babylonians believe themselves to be untouchable. As they've plundered the nations and they take one nation after the other, they've placed their pride in their military power and their weapons and their military strength. And what God says is, not so fast. You're not as untouchable as you think. You give, verse 10, you give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Even their material goods are personified and they declare retribution is needed to bring judgment upon the Babylonians. Verses 12 to 14, you see the, the third woe in terms of of the exploitation of the people. Verse 12, Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. You know, nations who rise up against other nations and in terms of violence and wickedness and iniquity and plundering, take what is not theirs in terms of property and pledges, God holds them accountable. And behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire and the nations weary themselves in vain. What it says here is that the, the, it reminds us of the Lord of hosts. And it tells us that as the nations labor, their labor will be burnt up in the fire. It will be of nothing. It tells us as the nations labor and become weary, their weariness will be done in vain because what they're doing is useless. They will experience judgment and will be taken away. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're reminded that God is the one who is glorified. In the end, nations will rise against nations. Nations will rise up. Nations will fall down. But the glory of the Lord will spread across the earth like the waters of the sea. And then in verses 15 to 17, drunkenness and violence. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. Speaking very figuratively here of the shame that they bring, not just upon themselves, but upon those who partner with them. Verse 16, you are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and also be exposed as uncircumcised. The uncircumcised were seen as those who were not following the Lord, but exercised iniquity and and participated in, in, in evil. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you. The Lord's right hand is always a, a picture of the military might of God. And we get to see his hand will be turned against them. And it says, an utter shame will be on your glory. Uh, you take a look. The picture here is, is pretty, pretty nasty because uh, their glory is their military power and their strength. And the picture here is as if they're clothed in a glorious outfit and then they vomit all over themselves. And you see shame is on their glory as judgment comes upon them. It says... For the violence done in Lebanon will cover you and the plunder of the beast which made them afraid. And so the way they treat animals and the trees in Lebanon is also called out here because of the men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. And then the final woe in verses 18 to 20 is idolatry. 
It says, what profit is the image and it's make, that its maker should carve it, the molded image, a teacher of lies that the maker of its mold should trust in it. Idols are useless. An idol is anything you trust in and that anything that takes the place of God in your life. It doesn't have to be a, a, a man-made image. It could be uh, a relationship. It could be a job. It could be your pursuit of, of one thing over the Lord to bring you ultimate satisfaction. An idol is anything that takes the place of God. And it's almost um, comical in verse 19. It says, Woe to him who says to the wood, Awake! We were taking a look at a piece of wood and said, Hey, wake up, buddy! It's, it's silly. It's foolish. To the silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in there is no breath at all. Now, I walk through those verses pretty quickly. But there are five woes, and I want you to see the significance of that and why so much text is taken up there. God will hold the nations accountable. God will hold rulers accountable. God will hold every single individual on the face of this earth accountable. And it's a reminder that we all need Christ and him crucified. It's a reminder that as you take a look at the international developments around the world that you can trust God in troubled times because he ultimately at the appointed time will bring about divine judgment. And will one day usher in the kingdom of God. And his kingdom is the only one that will stand. And we will be with God and his people forever and ever. And as we conclude with those five woes, let me bring you to verse 20. It says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Is the Lord worried? Is the Lord taking a look at the international developments and said, I didn't see that coming. I didn't know that nation was going to invade that nation. I didn't know about World War I. I didn't know about World War II. And I don't know if there's going to be a World War III. No, Lord knows all things. He's sitting in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. What a wonderful opportunity for us to read this text and stand back in awe and wonder at the greatness of our God. This is the revelation that transformed Habakkuk's worry into worship. This is the revelation that transformed his frustration into faith. This is the revelation that, that transformed his stress and his sobs into a song of praise. You know, sometimes we approach Thanksgiving and we always want to talk about count your blessings and name them one by one. But how do you count your blessings in troubled times? Habakkuk is the reminder to stand back. God is in his holy temple. He reigns and rules and we can trust him. We can stand back knowing that he is God and we are not. Can I give you a few takeaways and then I'm done? First one is fear God and exercise accountability before him. No one, no one is able to escape the judgment of God, no nation, no ruler, no individual. Secondly, write God's word on your heart. How do you navigate troubled times? How do you trust God when you don't understand him? By investing in his word. Read it. Get yourself a copy of it. Whether it's physical or, or electronic, write God's word on your heart, meditate on it, memorize it, come under the teaching of it, and then teach it to others. Write God's word on your heart, and then lastly, allow, allow the revelation of God's word to be the means that continues to transform any worries you have into worship as you give him praise, glory, and honor. Can we take some time to pray?
Father, we thank you for the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. We thank you for these prophecies of old. And Lord, we thank you for the reminder that your word is permanent, that your word should be made plain to all of us, and that your word is public. It is good news that should be declared to the ends of the earth. Father, we're reminded in a text like this that we all stand accountable before God. None of us can escape your judgment. And we know that apart from Christ, we are deserving of wrath and judgment. So, Father, if there's someone here today who's never received forgiveness, who's never trusted in Jesus as their Savior, and Lord, I pray in this moment they can. Father, I pray that they can say this as I share it. Father, I recognize I'm a sinner. I miss the mark. I know that I'm on a road that is marked by destruction, but also death. I'm going to spend an eternity without God and his people forever because my sin is costly. But I also know that Jesus came to die on the cross for my sins in order that I might have forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Today I make Jesus my Savior. I make him my Lord, the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, we declare this morning that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ's blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. In Christ the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.